0: Let's hack the process together. When cooling water suddenly becomes ice, that's a phase transition. And the same kind of thing can happen when people in an organization go from working as individuals to working as a team. Safi Bacall's new book, Loon Shots, explains how to recognize these patterns and how to incentivize them. In this episode of Hack the Process, Safi tells us what he appreciates about the uncomfortable feeling of starting something new why a background in theoretical physics prepared him for several career transitions, and how he researched the puzzles and patterns of story structure to optimize his non-fiction book around keeping a reader's attention. So today I'm speaking with Safi Bakal, and he has a new book out called Loon Shots. Safi, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Good. I'm excited to have you. You've got quite a background and with an impressive educational background, impressive entrepreneurial background, and now with some writing as well. I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit about this book that you've just recently finished?
1: Sure. It's called uh, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases and Transform Industries. Just modest goals. Okay. And in some sense, it's about the intersection of physics, business, and history. It's what an idea from physics tells us about the behavior of groups and how teams, companies, and nations can use that to innovate faster and better.
0: This is an interesting integration of ideas. And you come from a physics background yourself, don't you?
1: I did. I, was, I began as a theoretical physicist. I was in academics until I was about 30. And then I jumped ship to a completely different universe, the business world consulting, management consulting. And I did that for three and a half years. Then I jumped shipped again and started a small company, grew that. We eventually went, uh, I think ran that as a private company, six or seven years, took that public then ran it as a public company for another six or seven years, and then made another transition to essentially the last couple of years, full-time writing. So a lot of transitions.
0: Those transition points are always fascinating because I feel like a lot of that is defined by what we as a society have decided is doing this versus doing that. But sometimes in our heads, it kind of feels like it's all one thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I wonder if it was as or more disconcerting for the people around me as it was for me. For me at the time, it was exciting and fun. I think for some people around me, it was disconcerting.
0: (laughs) I'm going to guess that that might have been maybe family. Family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Family.
1: And you know, for also you leave one world, it's uh some of these worlds tend to be very tight communities and it's hard for them to understand why you would leave them. And if you're not part of the culture, if you're not part of the community, can you still be connected or not? And so I think it's different for the people making the change and the people around them who are processing that change.
0: I can imagine. But hearing you describe what you went through and the transitions that you made, it doesn't sound to me like you think of this as leaving things. It feels to me more like you're talking about going after something, like exploring curiosity.
1: Yeah, I think each of those transitions was driven by curiosity. So there's sort of a geeky science way that I like to describe it, which is I couple to the derivative. In, it's a very geeky term, so let me explain what I mean by that. Yes, please, for the audience. <laughs> yeah, so for, pretty much for the 99.99% of the planet that's not a theoretical physicist. The derivative is the slope. You know, when you have a uh, high derivative, that just means things are changing very quickly. And a flat derivative or, or no no slope, things are not changing very much. And in science or in physics, you talk about your coupling, the coupling between whether it's two particles or a particle and a force. Is it a strong coupling or a weak coupling? So for me, I couple or, or derive energy, derive happiness, and derive excitement less from the absolute of where something is, you know, where I am in life, and more from the slope: is am I changing? Am I growing? Am I learning? Am I curious? Is that's what I mean by a couple to the derivative? It means I really derive energy when I'm learning, and I don't derive a lot of energy when I'm not learning. So. I would say most of my, and I have always sort of taken that as a kind of a guiding principle is too fancy a word. But when I notice myself coming into work or whatever I'm doing and I'm not curious, that's a red flag. (laughs) So
0: if I feel like I've mastered something, that's not a good sign. Yeah, I can hear what you're saying. And the terminology you use is very distinct. But (laughs) The concept, I'm familiar with that. And it sounds like something that a lot of people who have an entrepreneurial passion would describe where they feel like if they've succeeded at something and they are now static, and they're just successful, they've mastered it, that is boring. And you want to go out and try something new.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it is a mindset because there's two ways to look at starting something new. On the, on the one hand, if you're at the beginning part of a slope of a learning curve, it can be very uncomfortable. You're not very good. People around you it's, are much better than you, and you look silly, and you don't know how things work. It's not in muscle memory. It's not familiar. It's not baked into your brain, and it can be very uncomfortable. You could look at it as a, you know, in that light, or you could look at it with the mindset of I've got all this incredible growth and learning ahead of me and how rare and how awesome is that. I'll give you an example. A few years ago for, I can't even remember what reason, I decided to take up a triathlon. <laughs> In, in retrospect, I had no idea what I was thinking, but somehow I th- thought it would be fun. So it's running, biking, swimming. And, you know, I had been doing casual jogging. I think, you know, most people can jog or run, and almost anybody can ride a bike. Swimming, you know, I'd been to the YMCA when I was a kid, and, you know, my parents had taken me to classes there. So I knew the basics of swimming. But what I quickly discovered is that splashing around in a pool is very different than swimming 1.2 miles in the ocean in open water. And if you just splash around like you ordinarily do in a pool, you're going to get exhausted and there's just no way you can do that. So you need to learn a whole new process, a whole new technique, a whole new way of swimming. And in fact, you have to break, as I later realized, your natural inclinations for how to swim. You know, let's keep your head up and see where you're going are a disaster because they create a lot of drag. And so you're kicking and exhausting. You can't swim, do long distance endurance swimming like that. Competitive swimmers all know this. They've all learned this as kids or whatever. You know, I was in my 40s, I think, at the time or late 30s. So I went to take there one of these little – I was living in New York and there, you know, one of these stores had these little rectangles with these sort of infinite swim loops where you just sort of stand in place and the water goes. And so I had some young kid who was, you know, some really good swimmer and he was probably, you know, in his 20s. And he was like taking me back to being like eight years old. It's like everything that you think you are doing or about swimming, you know, you're just going to have to get rid of it. Those are all bad habits. We're going to have to start from the beginning. And the amazing thing was this incredible experience of on a one to 10, I was probably a two as a swimmer. And then a few weeks later, I was a four. And then a few weeks later, I was a six. You know, I never got to be a great swimmer, but I didn't need to be. I was doing this for fun, not for competition. But that feeling of rapid growth is awesome. At the end of a month or two, you look back and you're like, wow, I can now go into a pool where, you know, after a couple laps, I used to be tired. I could swim a mile in the ocean without batting my eyes.
0: And that's just an awesome feeling. And that's the sort of thing that can get you through that feeling of discomfort when you start, if you can recognize that it's happening. And I think one of the challenges for a lot of people that you overcame by having a coach is not being able to recognize what progress is. There's
1: a mindset you can go in and you focus on the discomfort or the, your poor skill in the beginning, or you can focus on how good you'll feel at the end of you know period X when you have gone even halfway up that mountain. I think that is one of the keys to a lot of different things is even just cleaning the dishes in the sink. If you imagine, oh man, you know, the sink is full of dirty dishes and, you know, putting on the glove or whatever, getting my hands dirty, it's just going to be what an unpleasant thing. Or you just focus on having what a clean sink looks like at the end. So it's a little bit where you direct your mental gaze. Are you directing it to the discomfort in the beginning or are
0: you directing it to the good feeling at the end? Right, or even using that discomfort as something that is itself an indicator that you you want to appreciate at the time. You know, I'm chopping carrots. I want to be chopping carrots. I don't necessarily want the stew that I'm making at the moment, because right now I'm chopping the carrots.
1: <laughs> That's really at that next level. That's what I enjoy. I kind of, been, you flip it 180. Instead of finding the discomfort unpleasant, you find the discomfort kind of awesome. Because you know that whether it's six months or a year or two years out... You're not going to have that feeling of going from a two to a four to a six to an eight you're done wherever you end up, you know you might be an eight but you know what the feeling you know you could spend another couple of years and go from an eight to an 8.5 but that feeling of going from a two to an eight is kind of an awesome feeling
0: makes you want to start new things all the time <laughs> that's the
1: idea that's why i was giving that swim example because it just doesn't happen very often you know that was uh, that happened years ago and it's very rare that you get the gift of going from a two to an eight on anything especially when you're a little bit old i mean obviously when you're a kid every month when you're a young child every month every year is going from a two to an eight on something but then when you're older how often do you go from a two day to eight on anything the reason i get excited about transitions is i think of them as a gift to be a little kid again
0: i like that and your latest transition i guess was going from the business you were working in to starting the writing project.
1: That was a a complete change and absolutely. When I started, I was certainly a two. I won't presume to say I'm an eight, but now I have a whole set of tools and techniques and process and how it works and how to solve these writing puzzles and problems that I can very freshly remember when I had no clue in the world how to do it and was doing it all these silly ways and now it's it is a lot like the swimming
0: now i can you do this you do this you do this you knock this out you knock that out i like that you frame it around solving writing puzzles and problems it's it it sounds very much like a, a you know a physics student's approach to <laughs> to how to take on an artistic skill that may be the case but i i think a lot of a lot of writing is puzzle solving and
1: problem solving can you tell me more about that i'm curious I would say so much of it is really problem solving and puzzle. So for example, let's say you have an underlying theme or idea, you know, the idea of this book, I, you know, there was an underlying theme. Well, there's a real problem there, which is it's a series of stories connected by this one idea. But how do you, this idea of there's a, a new way to think about the behavior of groups and that tells you something very new about how people work together and how breakthroughs happen and what you can do to manage the environment so that breakthroughs happen more easily and faster and better. And ideas in and of themselves are kind of boring. You know, people don't get really excited about an idea. People care about people. They care about stories through which an idea may be revealed. And that's the most interesting. If you just talk about ideas, you might be a professor. Not the most interesting thing in the world. If you just talk about stories, you might be a fairy tale, which is okay. You know, if you just want to read a storybook. But the most interesting thing is if you have a series of stories that are connected through which an idea is gradually revealed and crystallizes. And that's the challenging. you could anybody can tell stories and lots of people can talk about ideas but can you tell a connected series of stories where you never want to put the book down where each page leads to the next one and you can't wait to find out what happens and you're gradually going up a staircase revealing an idea that's a pretty tough problem to solve if you're for example if you're writing a biography how do you structure it Uh, so i'm talking about the problem of structure if you're writing a biography well here's a good structure. Start when the guy was born and stop when the guy dies. That's not a bad structure. <laughs> so, you know, sort of a chronology, maybe a little bit prologue of who, you know, his parents were, and a little bit epilogue of what happened after. But the structure is pretty straightforward. If you're talking about the history of jazz in America, well, start with the beginning of, you know, chronological is a pretty good way to go. But this one, the, there was a big puzzle on how do you, structure. And I had to try lots of different things to solve that puzzle before something really
0: seemed to work. I'm curious what brought you to the point that you were able to analyze and to pull apart that structure and figure out for yourself what it was going to be that would make your book compelling. It's a good question. I think
1: the process, since you're podcast is called hack the process you have
0: uncovered my process yes <laughs> I think, I, I think we've
1: revealed something here you don't have to be a rocket scientist detective to like say i think this might be about process
0: i am not trying to hide the fact
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think it, it's a lot like that swimming example i had been giving this talk and i found it was a lot of fun to give this strange talk that was sort of a hobby which was just a random serendipitous event. I was asked one time to go to one of these idea kind of gatherings where everybody for fun would give a little seminar or talk about some area that was not their job, not their work. And so that, you know, if you're a very focused, goal-oriented person, let's get this done on time, on budget, and move on to the next thing. And that was like, all right, well, can't talk about the. What can I talk about? And so I had sort of this like fun idea. I was sort of been curious about, thinking about the arc of human thought, how have we as a human species evolved our thinking about the natural laws of the universe over a couple thousand years? What were the big steps? What were the big milestones that were big, sudden changes in the evolution of human thought? And can I do that really quickly? Because I don't have a giant attention span to read 17 volumes about that. Can I present those eight, figure out for myself, for fun, what are those milestones, those eight biggest ideas along the way? And then present them in you know, a 45-minute talk. Obviously, it's not going to be very detailed. It'll be a little more entertaining and fun. And I thought, that sounds kind of fun. And so I started reading and sort of serendipitously, I found it was really fun to think about the arc of history and try to see patterns in history. And I found it was fun to try to communicate it in an entertaining and concise way. I just found I liked both of those things to see patterns and to communicate. The challenge of taking 3,000 years of hi- history and boiling it down to 45 minutes it sounds nuts, and that made me kind of smile. Like, how do I figure what which part of the 3,000 years was boring? <laughs> and then get rid of that. <laughs> Can I get just the juicy bits? You know And I just thought, that sounds like kind of a fun exercise. Also, you know, I wasn't doing it for any reason other than it was going to be enjoyable for me, and that was kind of what would be most enjoyable for me. It's not like I'm writing this history to get tenure as a professor of whatever. I'm just kind of having fun and hoping people will enjoy it and be entertained and maybe learn something. So I started doing that, and so I, had, I remember the first time I did that, I was like, well, wow, you have to go to this," or I signed up for this thing, and I decided I closed the books on my. I think I think I was already at this company that I'd started. It was a. Uh, Year end, like New Year's event. And I stopped what I was doing December 18th or 19th or whatever, and just spent 10 days reading to write up. And I was like, this is like, these 10 days are like the most fun 10 days that I've had in years. This is just awesome. Like, I haven't had a chance to even read a book because I'm so focused. On, you know, you're entrepreneurial, working on this stuff. Everybody needs you every second. So Like this was just so much fun because I get to learn and read and then, you know, just learning and reading is one thing. But if you have a goal, like I've got to have an entertaining 45-minute story I'm going to tell that I'm reading with a purpose and that's even more fun. And then I'm like being creative because how do I make this funny and amusing and like, this is awesome. I Also just using a different part of the brain than running a business. So then I, I did that a few times and then people enjoyed it and said, you know, you should You know, can we get this and we'd love to read it? Can you write this up? And I was like, uh, I I got a day job. Sorry, this was just for, you know, 10 days of like weird personal hobby, self amusement. So I got to go back to the real world. But I just found myself really enjoying it and realized, you know, that was the beginning of the slope of a totally different mountain. And uh, when I'd reached the top of, you know, when I'd reached one mountain and climbed one mountain and things started to look static, I knew that that mountain was over there and that I would be starting in the beginning because I just had a tiny little hint that it would be fun.
0: So this was the slope toward actually creating a live presentation and then presenting it. And then it seems to have led you to the next slope toward creating long form nonfiction.
1: It was just so much fun to think about patterns of history and connecting them. And I just found also that when I would tell that story, people were really, really engaged and really curious. And I I thought this is just a little bit more my own curiosity. And I'm just having fun about seeing, you know, what are the eight biggest ideas in 3000 years of history? I'm kind of doing it for my own curiosity and amusement. I think this is kind of fun and interesting. And I really didn't know how to think about what are the eight biggest ideas. If I ask you, what are the eight biggest ideas in human thought? (laughs) I, I didn't know how to answer that. So it was sort of interesting just to think about that puzzle and then i thought well i you know i grew up as a scientist and a physics geek so it's probably just me but what i found was that there's an enormous appetite for that even among non-scientists and in fact the appetite was by far the strongest among
0: non-scientists there's a much larger audience of non-scientists out there firstly there's a lot more of them
1: but you know there's no certainty of right or wrong answers in the business world or in art. I mean, I'm a big consumer of, you know, popular culture art. I love movies as much as an next person, it, you know, and good books as well as junk books and so on. But there's no right or wrong answer. Whereas in science, there there's truth and there's hard science and you can check it with experiment, and you can be wrong. And so there's a certain comfort in that. And there's a certain fun in the ability that you can actually be wrong about something. And that's a It makes science so much fun and such a, in some ways, so beautiful because you you can be right or wrong.
0: I think I hear the subject for a book on the fun of being wrong.
1: Yeah, there was a lot more appetite and people seemed to enjoy the stories a lot more than I. It wasn't just me, and so I said, "Well, if I have some time someday, you know, this might be a thing to do." It was about ten years. Took about ten years to get there, but eventually I had the time, and I said, "Let me see what this is like." And I realized it was a really there was a puzzle every single day. There were so many different puzzles structure was just one aspect of the puzzle you know as an example how do I tell a story about a person that I I don't know you know I am used to telling stories of stuff that happened to me that's normal if you you know go hang out with your pals you say I you know this happened to me today that was really weird or yesterday last week I was sitting with my friend and this strange thing happened so you tell stories about yourself that's sort of normal or you know when I was Running a biotech company, you tell stories about your science, the science that you are working on. As a scientist, that's what you do. You did this research. Let me explain my research. It's my story about what happened to me. So it was just such an odd and new experience. How do I tell someone else's story? It didn't happen to me. And making it interesting or funny, it's like saying, it's like you sitting down for a beer with your friend and saying, you know, uh funny thing happened to this other guy. Let me, let me walk you through that. And your friend's like, wait, what? It happened to some other guy? Why are you telling me this funny thing that happened to this other guy? And then let me tell you what was really funny and what other people were thinking when that other guy did this. And this is why I think that, and you're like, what are you talking about? It's just not a very natural thing. It's, it sounds like a weird idea, but that's what you. it turns out you have to do. And it was a weird thing. And I remember, this is so fun. This is like what it is going into the swimming pool and somebody telling you, yeah, all this stuff you thought about how to swim, that's just not how it works. You can't be just telling your ideas and your stories. That's not very entertaining. You need to have an underlying theme and you have some good stories or good example. And those are other people. And for me, as a scientist, you you really don't borrow other people's work. You only talk about your work, what was original. And to the extent you say this other guy did this, you know, you're very careful about, you know, I'm using. But when you're telling a story in a book, let's say you're doing a telling the story of a character, someone else wrote. Mass, you know, did years of work to produce a biography. Uh, Let's say there's one character, and there's three or four good biographies. I'm not a professional historian. In in a few cases, I actually did go to archives, and in in some a small number, but in others, I am using existing literature of people who have done a ton of work. Now, I have a a theme that, and this is a particular example that's supporting that theme, but I'm taking somebody else's work. That's just a a little bit of a weird feeling.
0: As a scientist, you really only talk about original research. I could see where that could feel awkward, but I could also see where that could be kind of liberating.
1: It was pretty uncomfortable when I started. I remember I have a journalist friend and uh, I sat down with him and I I had to write this this story in there about the rise and fall of Pan Am because it illustrates a particular theme and the the main character there, a guy named Juan Trip. And so he's telling the story and I said, this is... I knew that it, it the theme that I wanted it to illustrate, and I had the basic idea. And I remember sitting down with him when I first started. I was sort of like that swim coach because this is a guy who's been doing this his whole, well, an excellent journalist who's been doing this kind of thing. And I was like, this is feels really awkward. Like I'm used to telling my story or the story of my idea. That's what you do as a scientist, or you're running a business, you're selling your like. These other scholars have done all this work, and I'm going to be just borrowing their work. And obviously, I'm citing them and you know, doing all the appropriate
0: footnotes and references. You're not just borrowing their work, you're amplifying their work. That's exactly
1: what he said. And he's like, don't think of it as like, they're the scholars and you're just taking. He said, you are giving them a gift because they're, you know, no offense, but nobody's going to be reading those biographies. Those are like really quite old books that are out of print and no one's going to be looking. And they spent years and years of their life digging up this stuff in archives. It's, it's like nobody, nobody even knows who this character was, let alone all the stories. And you might be like one of 10 people in the planet who's actually reading their book and now talking about it and citing it as one of, you know, the four or five main sources. You know, they're like, if they were alive, <laughs> they would be very grateful because you're, you're keeping their work alive in the 10 years or 15 years they spent in libraries researching that topic. I mean, you're not writing a condensed summary of it. You're picking, you know, this episode because it illustrates your point, but you're building on their work. And so, he did give me that mental shift. And then you, then you realize, I mean, and that's what journalists do. Journalists don't go into archives; they build on other scholars' work and hopefully cite them correctly. Anyway, it was yes, it did feel a little uncomfortable. I remember that distinctly. Like, how do I do this? This just feels really awkward. And him kind of coaching me through that. Said, that's actually, that's what every journalist does, you know, 500 times a day. So this is how you get comfortable.
0: So who was this? Who was your coach around this?
1: Oh, uh, it's, it's a guy named Josh Foyer. He's a journalist. He, come, he has a family of uh, journalists and he's written some great books. And so sort he of kind of helped.
0: I'm always fascinated to see who people turn to when they come up against a challenge like this, where they, they need somebody who's more experienced, who can guide them through and show them the steps.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. This is a strategic. It just happened they had a friend in Boston and who also <laughs> happened to be a journalist.
0: No, I, I like the concept because basically what you were talking about is going through, for example, 3,000 years of history and figuring out what parts are the boring parts. And you are plucking these people out of obscurity and saying, your work is no longer part of the boring parts. Your work is now worth highlighting.
1: Yeah. And, and thanks for saying I hadn't thought about that in a while now, but that's sort, like each of the stories that I tell, you know, most of them are not very well-known characters. I spent a lot of time, a lot of time digging into history and some of that would be what historians call primary research where I would go and actually find, you know, once you're done with the secondary research and what people have to say and you, if you still have questions, then you start to, having to go look at some original documents for
0: So you've clearly told a story about somebody other than yourself and you framed it in a way that was engaging and you staged it out and you held back details and you revealed details. These are all writer's tricks that, you know, people take years and years and years to learn. And it sounds like you did your own study about how to frame and how to structure things so that you could do that yourself.
1: There are many different. You asked, how, why do you think of writing as puzzle solving? There's so many puzzles. Structure. How do you tell the, you know, what's the arc of the book? How do you create a staircase so that every page and every ta- that's one? How do you tell a story? That's a totally different puzzle. You know, how do you write well so that the sentences don't have glitches in them and it sounds good music? That's another puzzle. How do you train yourself to improve? Because no one can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. Editors can't really fix that stuff. They can tweak around the edges, but they can't really help you. You've got to get the bones right. So all of those things are puzzles. And how do you learn that in and of itself? What's your process for getting better at that? is a puzzle. The way I thought of it was I just always thought about, there was a a Marlon, there was a line from Marlon Brando. Somebody asked him about how do you think about acting or what makes a great actor? Or what do you think about when you're acting or something like that? And he said, you imagine your audience sitting in the theater with a bag of popcorn and they're reaching their hand in the popcorn and they're putting it in their mouth. Your job is to stop the motion of the hand to the mouth. That's how I thought about writing is you've just got to be surprising all the time. If you're not surprising, if you're not saying something unexpected, if they know where you're going, then you're boring. Then you've got a reason to put it down. So your job is to never give the reader an excuse. I'll be like, what is going on? What's going to happen next? And why? What's just going on with this kind con- and what are we learning? Why is this guy going in this incredibly weird direction? What the hell is happening here? And you better deliver because if you don't deliver then it's just frustrating and you throw it away too and then you got to know when to deliver like not too soon not too late so all that's a puzzle
0: that's what i was thinking as you were telling me that, that you were dealing with a lot of the puzzles of micro structure for how you're going to keep somebody engaged and keep them wondering what the next bit is but at the same time you also have to have the macro structure in mind where you've got the theme. And you chose that particular story because it fit with your overarching theme. And I'm curious about the theme for this book because loonshots, the word doesn't actually mean anything to anybody yet, but can you tell us how you came up with this theme and how you structured your book around it?
1: <laughs> it was uh, a long trial and error. I was trying a lot of structures that didn't work. It's actually a very hard question to answer, to be honest, because so much of the writing, yeah, I was just pretty much disappeared into a cave for two or three years and I would sit down in front of the computer and I'd have a blank file or a blank page in front of me. I would just get really deep into a rabbit hole. And sometimes I would emerge. I'd be, my wife would hear me just sort of laughing, you know, from this little cell that I closed the windows. And and then she'd come out and she said, what happened in there? What were you laughing at? I'm like, I don't know. Was I laughing? Really? I have no idea. I just went into some really weird. So it's a little hard to recreate I look at it now, it all sort of hangs together and makes sense. Everybody says, oh, wow, that's really, you know, like I have no idea how I got there because it was just a blank piece of paper when I started. And the underlying theme of, you know, I started from the idea of why does the world speak English? Why did modern science begin in Western Europe when China, Islam, or India was so dominant for a thousand years? That's where I started. That's not a great place to start a book, 17th century astronomy. It doesn't really grab readers that much. It grabbed me. But that was one particular context. So that was sort of how I started it. How I actually started is not a great way to start a book as it turned out. So I had to find all sorts of different ways. And I just experimented with, I knew I had there a bunch of examples and a bunch of stories and what was the underlying theme and how would you reveal that theme and how would it all come together and how would each chapter lead into the next? There was just so much trial and error
0: that's interesting. So it sounds like you started with a set of stories that you had decided were not boring, and then you found the theme that connected them, as opposed to starting with a theme and finding stories that demonstrated. it.
1: I had a general picture of the underlying idea that there's sort of these sudden changes or phase transitions in groups, and you can work that out, and that that gives you a set of things that you can do to nurture breakthroughs better. And the underlying ideas, you know, number one, the biggest breakthroughs come from these, not from declaring moonshots, but from these small ideas that are neglected or dismissed for decades that everyone thinks are crazy. So I call them loonshots rather than moonshots because they don't arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets, dazzling everybody with their brilliance. So the biggest break, you know, number one, the biggest breakthroughs come from these loonshots. So you sort of need to illustrate that. Number two, people have this impression that that's sort of all, you, know, you just need a breakthrough it's about a great idea. And that's really not the real world. If you have a, think of a football field, 100 yards, just having the idea is getting you from your own goal to maybe the your own five or 10 yard line. You have to, to get from an idea to an actual product or a business or something customers pay for. You have to mobilize lots of people. You have to get support from all, you know, whether it's manufacturing or marketing or design or prototyping or getting it out into the field and getting feedback and improving the iterating. There's large teams are always involved in taking a early stage idea and making it an actual product. And people who don't realize that, they end up fumbling their ball on the fi- their own five or 10 yard line. And then the third principle is that there's a new way of thinking about the behavior of groups that has to do with borrowing an idea from physics, which no one has ever done before. So that's a whole new world. How? Why? What does the physics possibly tell you about the behavior of groups? How is there any connection from the stuff you learned in high school and motion of planets or something to why some teams do well and others fail? And it turns out there's a really straightforward connection. And it turned out a lot of stuff was sort of a surprise the more I read about it and learned about it there is a way to create a kind of a solid underlying model that shows you why when you think about elements of incentives and groups in a very straightforward way that you can see and understand why teams will suddenly change behavior from embracing wild new ideas to rigidly rejecting them in the same way that a glass of water will change from a flowing liquid to a rigid solid it's a very analogous set of ideas and it's not just a metaphor, you actually work out the mathematics and it's for the same basic reason. You always It's called a phase transition, a sudden change between two types of behavior, collective behavior. In one case, it's collective behavior of molecules and others collective behavior of people. And all phase transitions work more or less the same way. And they're always a competition between two forces, a tug of war between two forces. And you you adjust some parameters, all of a sudden the balance shifts in that tug of war and the system snaps. And it's true in a glass of water and it's true in the case of a group of people.
0: And then you can push that idea a little further and work it out and see what the implications are. So it's probably something that a lot of people have experienced, but not something that a lot of people would have recognized, particularly because they don't have the background in physics that you bring to the table.
1: Yeah, I think it's 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 exactly what you say. It's intuitively clear to anyone who's been in any kind who's experienced the growth from a small to a large organization or been in both places that something qualitatively shifts, but that's a, you know, a a vague feeling. And can't you be more quantitative about it? Can you be more scientific about it? And then can that go from being, you know, one level is you're describing it, but another level is once you develop these tools or ideas, can that give you new insights about how to design organizations to, for example, avoid that shift, avoid the sudden rigidity? And the answer is yes, once you understand For example, once you understand what makes a liquid freeze, it's actually pretty straightforward, the things that you can adjust to change that. You add salt into water when it snows at night, you sprinkle salt on your driveways because you know that lowers the freezing temperature. So those are the little small changes that you can make that affect the properties of matter and they're equivalent in the properties of group, once you work out the sort of underlying science of it, you identify that there are these kind of four control parameters within organizations that affect this transition. So it moves from being, hey, this is a cool description of something I knew to being, whoa, I now have a new toolbox that I didn't even know existed.
0: So you come from a scientific background, and you're talking about some concepts that maybe, you know, applied human interactions isn't something that has a lot of scientific experimentation and experience that you can replicate across different groups. I'm curious if you had the opportunity to to apply your theories and see them in practice and see that changing this parameter changes this and changing that parameter changes that.
1: Yeah, I think you can... I haven't started any studies myself. I think that's something, uh, uh, I'm just a guy sitting in a little eight by eight cell here writing, Mm -hmm. but um, no, that's something that you might do as a a business school professor or there are two different things. One is psychology, one is economics. So we obviously haven't gone into a ton of detail here, but uh, it's, it's in the book. This is actually really the not. Very complicated. It's maybe it sounds kind of complicated or funny, but it really isn't that complicated. It's pretty straightforward. Although a lot of things are in hindsight, <laughs> uh, they're not so obvious when you sit down. Now in hindsight, it seems all pretty obvious. Not very hard. Not very complicated. But it's just looking at incentives. Really, it's not there. Has there's a ton of focus on culture in the management or business literature, and you know certainly when I was a first time entrepreneur, reading all that stuff after the about one thousandth article or book on culture that I read, I. I kind of had enough. (laughs) They all sort of started to sound the same. I mean, not that they don't have good points in them, but there's only so many times, you know, you need to hear empowering your employees is a good thing, you know, thumbs up. This is less about psychology and more about just thinking about the balance of incentives. And that there, what is interesting is that, even if I talk with some scholars today, a lot of the management stuff has focused on psychology and culture, but very little is focused on structure. And that's what this book is about, structure rather than culture. It's about what are the elements of organizational design that will put in place an incentive system that's more aligned with nurturing breakthroughs. So I, I really don't talk that much about culture or the psychology aspects. It's really about, let's think about the incentives just for a minute. And so it's it really isn't that complicated. So for example, I'll explain every phase transition in nature to you in 90 seconds. It was just with the glass of water example. And then we'll see how it translates pretty straightforwardly to a team or a company. So glass of water, molecules, two forces on each molecule. One is entropy. Entropy wants to make molecules run around and be free. Binding energy wants to lock them in place so that each molecule is 2.8 angstroms from its neighbor, not 2.7, not 2.9. Now, at high temperatures, entropy wins. It's a really big force and binding energy is very small. Now, as you lower the temperature, entropy gets weaker and weaker and the binding energy gets relatively stronger and stronger. And all of a sudden at a critical point, boom, they cross. That's when the system snaps and water freezes. There's no CEO molecule saying, you know, you should be a liquid today and you should be a solid tomorrow. Let me check the temperature, be liquid. It's just a property of the structure. It emerges from the dynamic. So whenever you organize people into a group, you similarly create two forces. It's if, whenever you organize them, it has to be a group with a mission and a reward system tied to that mission. Once you have that, you will get two forces. What are they? The first one you can think of is stake and outcome. So let's say I'm at a small biotech company, just hypothetical example, and there's 10 people and we're working on a new cancer drug. Well, our stake and outcome is huge. If the drug works, everyone's going to be a hero and a millionaire. If the drug fails, we're all going to be unemployed. Stake and outcome is huge. What's the second force? Perks of rank. Meaning, are you a team member or a team captain? What's your base salary? What are any of the... Well, if you're in a 10-person company, who cares? Team member, team captain, whether the difference in salary there is sort of so tiny compared to whether you're unemployed or a millionaire. Now imagine you're at Pfizer's. Giant hundred thousand person company. Well, what's your stake in outcome? Well, let's say you have a project and it's a decent project. It might even a really good project might make five hundred million in sales if it's a good drug. Well, your revenue of your company is fifty billion. So your stake in outcome is let's say one percent. That's a lot smaller. If it works, it doesn't work. You'll still probably either other projects. On the other hand, what are the perks of rank? Well, if you get promoted, you might make a thirty percent bump in pay. So at Pfizer. Perks of rank are much bigger than stake and outcome. So suddenly those two things switched. So somewhere between a 10 person company and a 100,000 person company, there's a transition. That's a phase transition. The balance between those tug of war on those two forces shifts. So you can work that out and you can put in sort of a straightforward model of what the incentives really are. And I was sort of giving you the qualitative, but you can kind of write that down and you can back that out. And once you work that out and you can calculate roughly where between your 10 person and your 100 person 100,000 person company does it switch and then what are the once you work that out you find out the levers how do what are the elements of organizational design that allow me to be focus teams to be more focused on outcome than on promotion that the stakes of outcome win rather than the perks of rank so that's in a nutshell the underlying science of it it's applying these principles of phase transition in physics, applying it to the behavior of groups and specifically the balance of these two incentives that will always happen anytime somebody enters or forms
0: a group. And is the stake in outcome more related to the loon shots as opposed to the rank issues?
1: Right. And how does that, what does that tell you about innovation? Well, as soon as you cross that transition, as soon as people shift from a focus so loonshots arrive as we talked about. They don't these great ideas don't just show up and they're all done. They, they show up with all these flaws and early problems. And so in order to nurture them, you need people united around that project. Everybody has to be rowing the same boat, saving these projects as they struggle and stumble. That works if everybody's stake in outcome is high. Your small biotech company and the drug stumbles and fails. Everybody drops what they're doing to just fix the problem whether that's, it could be a small software company or a small film production. Everybody just stops what they're doing to save the project because the staking outcome is so high. You know, switch to the other side of the transition and people are more focused on careers and promotion and perks of rank. What they want to do is shoot down their neighbor's ideas. So what happens is people are much fo- more focused on what will get me promoted. Well, betting on a crazy project won't get me promoted. If nine out of 10 times that project will fail, that's not really good for my career. So when you're on the other side of that transition, you're in something, let's do the safe projects. Let's call it a franchise project, you know, the next Avengers movie or the next ulcer drug or whatever. Something that we've done many times before and we'll do some incremental thing. So you can call that the franchise phase. That's like the solid phase. And the other one is the loonshot phase, like the liquid phase. So it's less about culture. There's no CEO in a liquid, like I said. There's no man cultural manual about let's how do we be loosey goosey? or how do we be rigid? It's just a property of the interactions. The same principle here is it's an element or an aspect of structure. What are my incentives? Forget the psychology. What are my incentives? If I'm at a 10-person company, my incentives are I couldn't care less about being promoted. I just want the loon shot to work.
0: (laughs) If I'm at Pfizer, I don't care about the loon shot. I just want to be promoted. Fascinating. And so I can see how this ties into the book. And I can speak as somebody who has started reading the book and had a very hard time putting it down in order to come interview you, that you have definitely accomplished a lot of that challenge of getting those microstructures in place in such a way that people will want to keep on reading. So I'd love to tell people how they can find your book and how they can find out more about you. Sure. Just go to loonshots.com, L-O-O-N, loon, like loony, loonshots.com
1: and have everything you need there. Or also on Twitter, my handle is just my name, Safi Bakal.
0: Fantastic. Spelled S-A-F-I-B-A-H-C-A-L-L. That's right. All right. Fantastic. Safi, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your experiences. This has been fantastic. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process. Leave a review for the show on iTunes and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.